In the summer of 1972, every major member of both political parties could be found in one city, Miami Beach, Florida. The Republicans had already hosted their convention in Miami four years earlier in 1968, and it was smooth sailing, especially in comparison to the Democrat convention up in Chicago that year. Chicago had been flooded with protests and conflict while Miami remained calm. When the Republicans decided to host their next convention in Miami again, the Democrats followed suit, and for the last time since, both parties held their major convention in the exact same city, just a few weeks apart. This time, it was Miami Beach, Florida. That's not to say there wasn't conflict in 1972. 1968 was a hard year in America, but 1972 wasn't much better. The war in Vietnam led to increased distrust in the governments along with Watergate, and protesters at the conventions made their feelings known yet again. When the Democrats came in July, the protesters followed, but in comparison to how things went in Chicago in 68, this was a breath of fresh air. The Democratic candidate, a senator from South Dakota named George McGovern, was against the war continuing. The Republican candidate and sitting President Richard Nixon, on the other hand, was not so forthright, as was his way. There was twice as many protesters at the RNC than at the DNC. The protesters were made up of advocates and leaders from every movement, from the hippies to the veterans, from the Black Panthers to the gay rights movement. Flamingo Park, where the protesters resided, was seething and eager to make their voices heard. On the day Nixon himself was nominated, August 22nd, all hell broke loose. The Miami Herald cataloged the events in a report by Kira Gurney last year. Apparently, an elephant was marched down the streets, protesters shouted expletives at Republican politicians and delegates, and violence burst out along the streets. By the time both conventions were over, the city was sick of conventions, vowing to never hold them in their city ever again. Back in July, a few weeks earlier, when the Democrats were putting up their candidates, the protesters were still much smaller in number, and a few historic events occurred at once. You see, feminism was making a huge showing at the convention, solidifying its role in the Democratic platform. This took the form of the Equal Rights Amendment, which was seeking ratification across the country. Shirley Chisholm, who became the first African-American woman elected to Congress in 1968, went on to create even more historic moments in 1972. She was both the first African-American candidate to run for one of the major parties' presidential nominations, but also the first woman to do so for the Democrats. Across the platform that year, there was a movement for anti-war sentiment and sweeping multicultural change. Not everything on the table was accepted, though. Notably, same-sex marriage and abortion rights were left out. In fact, across the party, the Democrats spent the whole convention sorting out who they were and what they were fighting for. George McGovern, the obvious frontrunner and soon-to-be candidate, had many enemies within his own party, including future President Jimmy Carter. McGovern couldn't even land on a good running mate, and at one time, he asked a prominent rising star in the Democratic Party, then-governor of Florida, Reuben Askew. Rubin declined, but he took another pivotal role at the convention. He would be the keynote speaker, and though the convention itself was an outright nightmare for the Democrats, Rubin Askew was a revelation for a party in need of change. The South was changing, and the new Democrats akin to Governor Askew were at the forefront of that title shift. He had only been governor for a year and change, but in that time, he had made himself known as a major figure for the future. 
He fought for many causes in his time as governor, but his most notable moral was transparency. He fought for it any way he could, and in that fight, he aided in passing the first citizen initiative ballot amendment in Florida history. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. Tomorrow is election day, the last day to vote. Make sure that you get your voices heard. If you're looking for information about that, please look at the link below. Register to voteflorida.gov. They have all of the information you need to make sure that your vote is cast and it is done easily, smoothly, and correctly. In preparation of election day tomorrow, I'll be telling you about one of Florida's favorite governors, Reuben Askew, the war for transparency that pervaded his career, and how the passion he brought to everything he did reshaped the way we think about our state constitution. There's a strange amendment on the Florida ballot this year. There's six total, and the one I'm talking about is Amendment 4. According to Ballotpedia, Amendment 4 would, quote, require constitutional amendments to be approved by voters at two successive general elections to become effective, end quote. Now, if you don't know, and I hope you do, Florida is one of 18 states in the country that use a process called initiated amendments. This means that if a group of Floridians want to see something changed in our state laws or constitution, they start a petition. That petition gets a certain amount of signatures, and if it meets the appropriate requirements for a new amendment, it can be approved by the state government and put on the ballot to be voted on by Floridians. This strange new amendment, Amendment 4, would make it so that instead of the people just voting once, as is currently the case, we'd have to vote again two years later in order for that amendment to be put through. The group that led the campaign, Keep Our Constitution Clean PC, has cited that the Florida Constitution has been amended by the people 140 times in the last 50 plus years, while the U.S. Constitution has been amended 27 times in 200 plus years. Now, there's many differences between the Florida State Constitution and the U.S. Constitution, but I digress. Other states that have initiated amendments, like Arizona or Missouri, have amended their constitutions 156 and 117 times, respectively. It's not an uncommon thing for amendments to appear on ballots in those states and for voters in those states to decide if their constitution needs amending. In Florida, our amendments can make big impacts. Recent ones that have made immediate changes are things like our amendment to make medical marijuana available to Florida citizens, or the one that ended greyhound racing, which we talked about at the beginning of this year. Another would allow felons to vote in the state of Florida, but it has faced nothing but legal battles since it was passed in 2018. Some amendments on the ballot this year include a proposal to raise the minimum wage by a dollar per year until it's $15 in a few years. And another amendment would make our primaries open so everyone could vote on candidates regardless of their registered party, which is not the case currently. They are big significant things that can be changed by the will of the citizens who can petition to get the amendment on the ballot and then voters can make their voices heard. In a time where things at the federal level can feel extremely out of our control, like the interests of our home are not being represented, state amendments are a way to say, hey, we would like this. Do it, please. Amendment 4 seeks to make that process a little more difficult. If it passed, it would be the end of an era in Florida's history that began 50 years ago with the election of our 37th governor, Reuben Askew. 
I guess I woke up one morning after the election and realized that I'd gotten elected. That may, that may sound uh, possibly a little corny, and yet uh, when you get involved in an election, uh, you become involved in the, in the uh, accomplishment of a particular thing, and of course the election and winning the election becomes important to everyone. Reuben Askew was running for his second term as governor in 1974 in that clip. He had already had a very successful first term as governor, working toward desegregation and aiding the economy, hoping to bring Florida into the New South after the turmoil of the 1960s. Reflecting on his previous four years with four potential years ahead, Reuben Askew shares some optimism on his goals for his second term. I hope you enjoy listening to Governor Askew's voice as much as I do. And then uh, after the election's over and then all of a sudden uh, you realize what's ahead of you. And it's been uh, four years, I think, of uh, growth uh, for me personally. I don't believe that you can be given the opportunity to assume as much responsibility as is entailed in the Office of Governor of Florida uh, without growing. And uh, I feel and uh, that I have certainly uh, attained a certain amount of increased maturity over four years through the exercise of that uh, responsibility, and uh, they've been four interesting years. I can think of so many interesting things that <clears throat> have happened to me. Governor Askew has such a natural tone to his voice, a calming effect in everything he says in his Oklahoma accent. He smiles warmly and has very friendly eyes, and just an all-around genteel style to him. The good news is that Mr. Askew was not just friendly in appearance. By all accounts, he actually was that nice and friendly. Not only a hardworking and kind man, he attempted to bring some of that into his politics. But for as friendly as Governor Askew was, when it came to integrity and clarity, the governor could get really heated. Born in Muskegee, Oklahoma in 1928, Reuben Askew moved to Pensacola, Florida when he was just nine years old. He joined the Army right out of high school and eventually served in the Air Force in the early 50s. He went to Florida State and the University of Florida, where he graduated UF's law school in 1956. By 30, he was serving in the Florida House of Representatives for Escambia County, where he grew up, and he served as a partner in a law firm. By 1962, he was in the state Senate, and his focus had shifted to what would become a central tenant of the rest of his career, total government transparency. Ethics were at the core of everything he believed in as a person, as a lawyer, and as a politician. He had an outspoken interest in changing up the construction of Florida's government, and now, while serving in its Senate, he had an opportunity to see that idea put to action. During his time in the Senate, the Florida government had been working to pass a very important piece of legislature forward. You've almost certainly heard of it. It was called the Government in the Sunshine Law, but most people just call it the Sunshine Law. You've probably heard about the Sunshine Law in relationship to the phenomenon known as Florida Man, the unfortunate joke that has spread around the country, making light of all of the troubles that appear in our state. The Sunshine Law, which allows for government records to be available to the public, allows for news organizations both here across the country and abroad to see the things that are happening in our state at a criminal level and share those stories. Yes, we have some very unusual things that happen here, and a lot of them involve alligators, but because of the Sunshine Law, there is greater access to that, and so the stories spread easier. If you want to read more about that, 
I've attached a link written by our friend Craig Pittman, who writes a lot about that in his work. But the origins of the Sunshine Law go back to 1957. Back then, it was taking its very first steps toward completion. There had been lots of discussion for years over ensuring transparency in Florida's government, specifically making it so that civilians could be aware of the goings-on of government meetings. Following World War II, the press wanted more access to what was happening behind closed doors, and throughout the 50s, starting with Alabama, more and more states had laws in effect that would allow people access to state government records. The first to draft this sort of law for Florida was State Senator J. Emery Cross, who believed that publicly elected officials should not be discussing things for the public in private. The state legislature naturally resisted seeking to keep their privacy, but Cross was persistent. Every year, he presented the bill, and every year, it was shot down. Until 1967. The media gathered around the cause, and a new influx of legislators from the famous 1966 election helped bring the law forward. One supporter for the Sunshine Law was, of course, Reuben Askew. Askew saw the Sunshine Law as a perfect opportunity for the change he was looking for. He would resume that fight a few years later when he was governor, but we'll get there in a moment. He approved of the Sunshine Law, and so did the rest of the Senate. It was put into effect in 1967. The next year, in 1968, Governor Claude Kirk was part of a very important change to our state government, not just the Sunshine Law, something much bigger. Florida had not updated its constitution in over 80 years at that point. It was extremely outdated, filled with racist language and mandates that upheld the types of laws that you'd see through the Jim Crow South. Florida was due for a new constitution, and starting in the summer of 1968, our legislature started drafting it. Many things were fixed immediately, such as voting rights and suffrage, and it solved a major problem with our legislative districts. Certain districts, notably rural ones up to that point, had more legislators than others. This meant that those districts could basically rule the legislative branch without opposition. That group that ruled the legislative branch was called the Pork Chop Gang, but I'll tell you more about them in November. With this new constitution, that was all over. The districts were balanced. And one of the most important additions to the constitution was a very simple one. If it was appropriately approved by the electorate, Florida voters could pass an amendment that would allow for new changes to the state constitution. That is where this all started. The voters approved the new constitution in November of 1968, just as Richard Nixon was elected to the presidency. The very first constitutional amendment, however, would not be passed in Florida until eight years later, in 1976. By 1968, as the new constitution was moving through the legislature, Senator Reuben Askew had risen to the role of president pro tempore in the state senate. That meant that if the actual president of the Senate was unavailable, Askew could step in. He had only been in the Senate six years, but he had clearly earned a high level of respect with his peers. But the South was changing, and his party, the Democrats, had split just a few years ago on the problem of segregation. Askew wanted to see Florida move forward, away from segregation, and to enact more government transparency acts, like the Sunshine Law. Claude Kirk, then the governor, was a Republican who had helped pass the Sunshine Law, but Reuben believed in more. He resigned from his role in the Senate, and beginning in 1970, he officially started running for the Democratic candidacy for governor. 
Claude Kirk, you may remember, was the first Republican to hold the role of governor in Florida since Reconstruction. But he had a fight in Reuben Askew. The election was not pretty. Claude Kirk had a competing Republican who fought for the nomination in the form of Jack Eckerd, the owner of Eckerd's drugstores and the namesake for Eckerd College. The third Republican running was a man named Edward G. Gurney, who Claude Kirk despised. They would fight for years. Name-calling ran amok in the Republican Party, and even though Kirk won out against all other Republicans for his re-election, the division in the party would ripple down through the years. It broke apart the Republicans enough that the Democrats were able to charge into the governor's mansion. Reuben Askew had the charm and ability to contest Kirk, as he was a trusted senator during his career. Kirk was not too sweet on Reuben Askew. He called him, quote, a mama's boy who wouldn't have the courage to stand up under fire of the legislators, end quote. Kirk had spent his four years as governor being brash and combative, and the calm, friendly Askew, a man who never drank alcohol, never cussed, and never smoked, was a natural foil to the boorish Republican governor. Reuben very well may have been a so-called goody-two-shoes, but it wasn't a facade. Floridians saw that and liked it, and Askew beat Kirk by 13%, 56.9 against 43.1. Governor Askew had such a successful first term from 1970 to 74 that he won handily in the 1974 election, making him the second governor in Florida history to have two terms. It's there, in that second term of Reuben Askew's governorship, where he really made history. He had been working very hard to pass a brand new transparency bill through the government, and to ensure it succeeded, he had to go about it in a brand new way. Watergate had left its impact on the nation, and President Nixon had resigned in 1974. In an event so full of obfuscation and deceit, the American people were more and more bitter toward their government. How could they regain that optimism and trust when clarity was simply not on the table? And it didn't end in Washington. Down in Florida, the state Supreme Court was facing considerable scrutiny as scandals came one after another. In 1973, the Tampa Tribune reported that, quote, several state Supreme Court justices had accepted bribes regarding their ruling on horse and dog racing, end quote. Several were implicated and several were on the brink of impeachment. There were new vacancies on the court and Askew was juggling several problems at once. He'd spent much of his time as governor rebuilding the court system in Florida from the ground up, removing outdated rules, laws, and systems, reorganizing the courts, and drafting new articles to the Constitution. But this was bad news. Everything was going haywire, and the ever-prudent, ever-moral governor wanted to ensure that this sort of thing, under his leadership or otherwise, would never happen again. Reuben Askew sought about passing new legislation that would make it so that all public officials had to disclose their financial records, campaign-centric or otherwise. This was a direct response to the bribes going to judges, but also to ensure that lobbying couldn't make a direct impact on the politicians who were supposed to be serving the will of the people. Naturally, finding traction with the legislature was slow going, but Askew wanted it done. There was a new way to ensure that this sort of thing could get passed and to make sure that the will of the people was behind this plan. So he did something new. He decided to use the new amendment rule within the 1968 state constitution. If he got enough signed petitions, then the new amendment would be on the ballot in November to be voted on by the people. 
They called it fittingly the Sunshine Amendment. They needed 210,000 signatures. He worked with a nonprofit that still exists today, Common Cause, to gather all the signatures necessary. They succeeded, got approval by the Supreme Court to keep it on the ballot, and on November 4th, 1976, Florida voted. There were nine total amendments on the ballot that year, and four of them were approved. Reuben Askew's Sunshine Amendment was Amendment Number 1. Nearly 80% voted for the amendment to be approved, 1.77 million Floridians. The other amendments were sent to the ballot by the legislature, but the Sunshine Amendment was signed by the citizens, petitioned by Florida, and voted for by Florida. The Sunshine Amendment became the first successful petitioned ballot amendment in Florida history. I try not to be overly saccharine about electoral politics. It's a system with many, many issues within it still. There are regulations still built to disenfranchise people, needlessly complicated rules put in place, and gerrymandered districts built specifically to manipulate people's votes. It's exhausting how many issues there are and how many times the system has completely and totally screwed up. I don't ignore that. But amendments, perhaps, are one of the last bastions of electoral politics that I find some hope in. I have a great fondness for them. Yes, sometimes the amendments are ignored or edited, such as the case in Amendment 4 back in 2018. The legislature of Florida has tied up the process to allow felons to vote. Sometimes the amendments are written so strangely that you aren't even sure what it is you're voting for. You could be voting for the first thing at the top of the amendment, but there's something secret buried within that you don't even realize you're voting for. Some of them are promoted by lobbyist groups or politicians who want to see something change that would only benefit them and no one else. But I don't know. In a world of this or that, in a time where the whole bigger picture feels out of our control, we can start a petition and ask Floridians if you believe in this thing too. I sure would like it if you did. In the past, you could find petitioners at libraries. I'd always talk with them, hear what they were vouching for. Why did it matter to them? What was the fight? The best place I ever met a petitioner was outside the Strawberry Festival over in Plant City. It was literally a carnival, and there they were, speaking their mind. We talked for a long time that day about something I can't even remember now. Solar panels, maybe. Whether I agreed with them or not didn't matter at that moment. I was excited that they were passionate enough to do that kind of work. I hope that at some point in my life, you'll find me out there with a clipboard outside of a library making my case for some important cause too. And I think that's one of the things I like most about Ruben Askew. Politicians, especially historic ones, can be tough to love. Times change, and what was decent then may not be as decent now, but Ruben Askew has a sort of raw, unfiltered kindness in him. You can hear it in his voice, in the interviews from throughout his life, and in the things he did when he was in office. He brought to politics what he believed in life. He wanted honesty, so he fought for honesty. He believed in justice, so he fought for justice. And he wasn't always a quiet, friendly man. He could get angry. He would fight. He would speak out on what he felt was good and just. It makes me proud knowing he stood for my state once. And it makes me proud that our first ballot amendment, of which there have been so many since, came from such a good place. The idea was to make our politics more ethical. What a noble pursuit. What a brilliant idea that would be. 
Obviously, that idea has been tarnished and obscured by many since, but the root of the idea lives on. Ruben Askew could not see the future, and neither can we, as much as that may help us sleep at night. Every decision we make is a wish for something better. What we want may change along the way. Things may be broken or altered as our hopes move forward in the decades to come. But we have to start somewhere. You have to want to change. You never know what could happen after that. It was two weeks before election day that I voted. It was easy. I was lucky. I didn't have to wait very long. I woke up early, got in line, lots of other people wearing masks. It was fast. Everyone was nice to me. Not everyone has it that easy. Many places it has become difficult to get your vote out there. That is scary. But if you can, and if you haven't yet, vote. It doesn't change everything all at once. You vote, and then you go home, and then you wait. And no matter what happens, no matter how it goes, we wake up tomorrow, we keep fighting. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really amazing stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. I would recommend listening to my episode from this time last year about the election of 1966. This episode is actually sort of a sequel to that episode. That tells the story of the elections that led up to all of the events that happened in this episode. So if you want to hear part one of this story, start there. If you did enjoy this episode or this show, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible to those who don't know that it exists, and it means the world to me that you tell me what you love about this show. I truly love making it. I started making it for Election Day in 2018, and the fact that we are at a new Election Day, and there's more looming on the horizon, 2022 is not that far away, it means the world to me that I get to tell the stories about Florida at such an important time in our history. Thank you for listening. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. And you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. I've attached some links below to stories related to this crazy story. I've attached some links to Craig Pittman's work so you can read more about the phenomenon of Florida Man. I've attached some links about the history of Reuben Askew and the very important impacts of the Sunshine Amendment. I know I already said it, but just in case you haven't done it yet, register to voteflorida.gov. It's at the top of the description below. There's a link right there for you. If you haven't voted yet, if you don't know where to go, go to that link type in your zip code, find where you have to go, and go. I'll see you on the other side. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Next week, the longleaf pine, one of Florida's most unique trees, how close it is to oblivion and the incredible work that's being done to save it 
after Hurricane Michael nearly wiped it off the map. I'll see you next Monday with that brand new episode. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Drink more water. Wear a mask when you go outside. And if you haven't yet, vote. We need you. Have a good week. Try to get some rest. Don't freak out. I'll see you on the other side.